Hey, welcome to Coffee Room Chronicles. Hey, Kat. Hey, K-Tom. What's the what? Girl, what is the what? Really, this week is raggedy. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I feel like I am out of the storm. Okay, yeah. like the sun is shining. Everything is settled around you. You're on the beach or? In my mind, I'm on the beach, but you know, we still can't travel. I know, I know. I, outside ain't all the way open. It's okay. Um, so what's happening in the copy room? Wait, wait, wait. First of all, who is joining us in the copy room today? I am so freaking hyped about who's joining the one and only copy room chronicles it is one of my good friends from college who i've like now known for what more than a decade at this point omg um to all of our listeners new and old we want to introduce you to our friend rachel hi rage hey y'all hey rachel (laughs) we are so excited to have you um Rachel, I always got to give her her flowers. She, you know, I don't even know if she knows how much I'd be talking about her, but Rachel is the reason why I, I went into education. Like, she was the person who convinced me to do TFA. And I was like, girl, no. And she was like, what is the worst that could happen if you go through this process and you don't want to do it, then that's it. You don't have to do it. But I ended up doing it. Thanks, Rach. <laughs> You're welcome. It's so good to have you in this work. So I'm glad that... Uh, um, how many years ago? Uh, nine years ago, we had that conversation. Um, so thank you for sharing my flowers with me. Yes, queen. So what is happening in the copy room? I know for me, we are getting ready for a break. So we are ironing those break packets and making sure that we are all set up, but we're also trying to keep it together and not mentally go on break before it actually starts. So what's happening in your copy rooms? For me, it's just making sure is, I don't know, it's so interesting being on the leadership side of things because it's not about like getting kids ready for anything. It's about making sure my teachers and staff are ready. So making sure uh, report card grades have been finalized, making sure break packets are printed and ready to go, making sure distribution day is set up so that like our remote students or students who weren't in the building can pick up materials. So it's just interesting that like all of my work is very teacher facing and making sure they're good. And I know that if they're good, the kids are going to be good. So yeah, Rach, what, what's going on in your world? I know you don't got the typical copy room, but everybody got their own copy room. Right, right. So uh, it's funny that you just mentioned about um, break because um, one of the people that I partner with, they are an educational uh, district. So they're one of my ed clients. And uh, we've been talking a lot about, you know, following up from our training we had last week on equitable practices. Like, do we send this long follow-up email? Like, are people even in the space to even process what's going on? So um, it's funny being out of education for some time. I forget some of those things and how breaks would happen because on the other side of my world, I am in the midst of doing Uh, a webinar series called Leading with Equity. And my most important one- I'm sorry, Rachel, let me stop you right there. Can we run the tape back? Okay, what are you leading right now? So the people know? Um, So I am leading a four-part webinar series called Leading with Equity. 
Uh, the first two were focused on the institutional level uh, for businesses and organizations and educational institutions. And then this week, the last week is in racial affinity groups. So for white people and people of color. And the copy room tea is that I was in my group chat today to help me synthesize. Um, and I asked them the question, what is some of the most frustrating things that white people do at work that really tick you off? Like, essentially, the question is for the listeners out there that might be some type of way. It's really, how does whiteness show up and how does it cause people of color harm? Um, and we know that in education, white women make up a large percentage, over 80% of the teaching staff. And so it is really critical that we are reflecting on our own socializations and the ways in which we support or perpetuate white supremacy culture. So our group chat was on fire today from all the way from, um, what was it? Uh, cultural appropriation, so co-opting language, all the way to the, um, the ways in which white people use soft or indirect language to describe things like, this is really challenging times, instead of saying, you know, um, Black people continue to be killed by police, but, you know. So that was the current tea, and just a lot of things going on, and sometimes that I forget that I have a break. Um, so... A big, big shift from uh, where I used to be to now. So thanks I'm for sharing. Just, I'm just cracking up right now because I'm on this said group chat. And when I tell you the group chat be lit, but it picks and chooses when it's lit. Like there's some days where it's just like everybody's actually working and being productive. And then you have moments like this where Rachel's using us to like field her questions. And then I go step away from my phone and I come back to like 39 text messages and you got people going ham and I be weak. All you see from me is like, ha ha ha, exclamation point, <laughs> ha ha ha. <laughs> Cause it be, it's so on brand and like so true everything that's said, but sometimes it just be so outlandish and I love it. Absolutely. Honestly, with group chats, all it takes is one voice note or one triggering text. But I don't know. Rachel, you said so much in just that short amount of time, just explaining your copy room. For those of us who do not know, um, you spoke about DEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Can you tell us, our listeners, what you do and kind of what was your catalyst that got you into this work and made you think or feel like, no, there's something to disrupt here? <clears throat> yeah, great question. So I am a diversity, and equity, inclusion strategist, speaker, and trainer. Um, I launched my own business uh, actually after I lost my job um, earlier this year. I felt like it was the perfect um, way for telling me um, and convincing me that it was my opportunity to step uh, out in my shine and to do the work that I know that literally my entire life has been, I was positioned to do. And I'll talk a little bit about that to share with you how that um, has gone into, or reflected on that, I should say. And so I started my own consulting business earlier this year, formally, but I would like to say I've been informally doing this for a long time. And I think that a lot of people of color, and particularly identify as a black woman, 
Um, and so my other intersectionality identity markers are that I'm light-skinned, I'm able-bodied, I am middle-class, I am cisgendered, heterosexual, et cetera, et cetera. So I hold a lot of power in many of my um, identity markers. And also the one, the two most salient for us in the United States is our race and our gender. And so for me, it's really important whenever I'm introducing myself to really center around this idea of intersectionality and intersectional identity markers. Because when you think about, for me, what was the catalyst for my disruption, it really stemmed around my experience being a black woman in education, not only as a teacher, but within the nonprofit world. And I was doing a lot of what I would say free labor for the institutions in terms of interrogating their systems, um, elevating breaches or sharing the ways in which white supremacy culture was manifesting. And so I was already doing that work and that was in addition to my regular responsibilities of creating a coaching framework steeped in culture responsive pedagogy, right? And so the catalyst for my disruption really was the fact that I was witnessing the mismatch of what organizations and particularly educational institutions say is really important, which is anti-racist practices, centering students, et cetera, et cetera, or diversity, equity, inclusion, and actually the way that they went about it, which was really oppressive, right? Um, valuing outcomes, test scores, et cetera, et cetera, over students, over people, um, and so for me, it was that um, I'm not new to this, I'm true to this. And so it's time for me to do my own and to step out into the world and bring the gifts to other people. Okay, 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 she in the pulpit. What an intro, what <laughs> an intro. Um, okay, podcast episode done. You know why we're here. Um, but okay. you spoke a lot or to your educational experience and your role as an educator and then as a student. So can you describe your educational experience to us and how that kind of led you here? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I thought about this a lot because, you know, it's really interesting when you are an educator and you practice anti-racism, one of the philosophies is to unlearn, to relearn. And that means to reflect directly on your educational experience, to understand what are the mindsets and beliefs that I hold about schooling, what the purpose of schooling should be, um, and all of those things. And so I've, I've done a lot of reflection around this. And when I think about my educational schooling or schooling experience. I first went to my pre-K, that's what they call in Boston. There was like K1, no, it's K1, K2. I don't, I think it was literally preschool, kindergarten was in a Catholic school in the city of Boston. And that was, I literally don't know anything besides us doing nap time. So let's be real clear about that. But uh, I am the youngest of five and my siblings had a very different experience um, being in the Catholic school there where like religion was deemed more important than some of their math classes. And so they actually, because of funding had to attend um, religion classes over math. And, and that actually 
between our family is an interesting dynamic between how the educational experiences evolved for us, where me, myself and my youngest brother, who did not attend Catholic school for the majority of our lives, are actually ended up being in STEM majors and my siblings were more in liberal arts. So there was direct impact on the schooling experience with what we ended up doing. And so my parents were like, very typical immigrants, first generation American, they're Cape Verdean. Um, and they were like, we want to move to um, the suburbs. And they per specifically moved out of the city of Boston to go to a better schooling system. And so, in their head, I know that they thought it was the best decision for them and for us in terms of access. Well, in reality, the academic portion was there, but a lot of the deep-seated um, educational white supremacy racist experiences was embedded in my suburban schools, right? So tracking was a really big thing that I experienced. And so it's interesting when I reflect on like, yes, was I able to access AP classes in that way and have a leg up um, necessarily, <clears throat> a leg up compared to my other peers when I went to college. But the reality was that once I got to, and we're in track classes. And so if for listeners, if you don't know what tracking is, it's essentially, um, you probably are like, what? That's what it's called? When you have the ability to um, take only like AP classes, honors classes, quote unquote, regular classes, even in looking at that language, it is um, actually really um, negative. And so they will say like only if you can only take AP classes if you were previously in honors classes. And so it's a way of actually um, power hoarding for students in a way that's really subconscious. And the reality is that we know the students who are in tract or higher classes are typically white students. And like my suburbs were primarily white. And so though I was in AP biology, I was one of the only students of color period in that class. So I actually wasn't able to see people who looked like me. My teachers were definitely white, majority white women. So there were so many things that I just thought was the normal schooling experience for someone who went to the suburbs. And when I reflect on it now, as an educator, as someone who's a practicing anti-racist, there was, there is a lot of things that are problematic. So that's a little bit about like where I went to school and how it kind of connects to my thoughts now. Rach, I know you said like, while you had in terms of like access to AP classes and maybe like high quality instruction in terms of your actual school experience, socially, emotionally, what was that like for you? When you hear the word school, you look back to when you were young, was that a trigger for you? Is that something that brought, brings you joy when you reflect back? What is hearing school for you? <clears throat> yeah, so I think it's a mixed bag of things. Um, I think there's a part of me that looks at it as really painful, actually, because, um, you know, I went to a majority Irish Catholic um, school where there were not that many students of color. And I remember feeling other and 
also having a desire for, for assimilation. And so for me, like my friends actually were, were white and that meant because they were in my classes, right? And I like befriended them for group projects and things like that. And I played a lot of sports. And so a lot of the sports that I played, field hockey and lacrosse were mostly for um, like white women played alongside me. And I remember doing things that were about assimilation. So like straightening my hair was a really big example. And which makes me like, I think that's why it's painful for me because I think back to the ways in which I didn't see myself or other people or like another teacher um, that looked like me that would be able to say things or to share like black is beautiful and particularly like my, my curly hair. And so I remember just like a desire to fit in and this like huge, huge uncomfortability about being racially ambiguous and being Cape Verdean, which was like, I don't feel like I don't think I quite understood like blackness is not a monolith at that time to be able to understand what it meant for me to be to identify as black or a black woman and also being super confused like knowing and feeling like I didn't fit in with white people so it's interesting when I think back to this like socially and when you think about the racial identity development wheel I was like in this really interesting of like biracial place but I, I wouldn't define that necessarily as now. And so it's, it was a mix of definitely painful because of my identity, but my identity, because I was consistently thinking about my identity, my ability to speak about it now as an adult is with so much comfort and it's not something that's new for me. So there's like some pain and lessons in that pain. And then I think the other part of school was like, I loved math. I like jammed with math. Um, I felt really proud of being good at something and really just being able to be an AP level, an AP calculus and do well. And like, that was what brought me a lot of joy. Um, So academically, I think that that was true too. Um, But I would say like in high school and, and a lot of most of my schooling K-12 experience mostly feels like a lot of pain and not fitting in and like trying to navigate that world that just didn't feel right for me. So in thinking about your educational journey and where you are now, are you on the path you originally set for yourself? Absolutely not. So we just heard me talk about... um, You just heard me talk a lot about math and all of those things. So I for sure was dead set on being a doctor, y'all. Like I was, I in junior year, I was taking all my AP classes in in high school um, and senior year and really thinking about the ways in which that I could access being a doctor. I remember I... I um, declared my major as pre-med. First of all, that doesn't even exist in Syracuse. They make you declare something else like your sophomore year. But so I came in with being pre-med and that meant that I had to retake all my AP classes because they were like, it looks better for med schools when you retake, um, when you take college level classes and not to accept your AP credit. First of all, that's a scam. S 
C to the A to the M for making people pay more money for, for, for classes. So that's like a whole other tangent that I won't go on. And so I wanted to be a doctor and really a lot of that was stemmed from um, my experiences with my grandfather who had passed away when I was a junior and really drived that for me. And the reality was that I was like, okay, cool. Took all these science classes, passed organic chemistry, thank the Lord. And um, it was time for my junior year and I wanted to go abroad. And so I was like, well, if I have to go abroad, I'm going to have to, I'm going to not have all of the requirements in time to apply for med school my senior year, because I, I was going to be in Madrid and Madrid didn't offer the classes that you would need for it. Of course, I was taking scuba diving classes. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So I don't think my med schools were going to be accepting me for that. Uh, and what we, what I decided was to apply for Teach for America, just to be like, okay, I'm going to take a gap year. And I decided to apply for Teach for America with that. But I, with that in mind, I also had been doing a lot of um, work in Syracuse City School District from a America Reads program called Literacy Corps. And so I was doing that work for four, for three years at that point. And so education was always like a big driver for me and in that work, but not really thinking of it as what would be like a career for me. And so the path, which was med school, totally took a head, um, turned on its head when I got into Teach for America, started teaching in Chicago. And really, I think, what drove me and still drives me to this day was the question on what makes a good teacher great and how does that have to do with their identity markers and when you really think about culture responsive pedagogy which is the good teaching as Gloria Ladzing Billing says that is really central to that how does your identity or critical consciousness impact the ways in which you teach. And so what I thought I wanted, which is I think was what my family wanted for me, um, was not what I wanted. And so I switched really proudly and happily to a career in education. And those questions, right, I, I, in my life, I center a lot of my work, I feel like a researcher, but like on questions, right? That was, what is it? mean for a teacher to be great then it became what does it mean for a coach to be effective based on their identity and then it evolved in different ways to now really it's um how do organizations organizations in business um disrupt inequity and create spaces for people to flourish right so for me when i think about what set me off it's like these series of questions that i want the answers to and to have a deeper understanding right and when you think about it it started from individual teacher level all the way up to a system level. And so moving through the system is really what has kept me, one, intellectually stimulated, but also really drives my desire to make change. So I know that's a long-winded answer into what set, uh, what set me off on the original path of med school. Um, but I think I can still have an impact in medicine. I can think about the ways in which black women are dying at 
um, during childbirth, and that has directly to do with um, racism within the med medical system and OBGYNs and not the, the lack of presence. Like, so for me, I, I really think more broadly about this work. Um, and that's why a little bit I moved away from just education. Mm. Girl. Okay, Tom, how you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling seasoned. <laughs> um, no, but it's super exciting to hear about Rachel doing this work. And I think about my experience in some of the schools that I've worked in, or even some of the systems, right? Or just being an alum of TFA myself. In this process of dismantling, have you ever found yourself perpetuating the very system you were working to disrupt? And like, if so, like, how did you navigate that? <clears throat> yeah, so I think what's important um, is that we start from this fundamental truth, which is both as white people and people of color, we have been socialized to believe in white supremacy culture, which is this ideology that white people are superior to people of color and that people of color are inherently inferior. And so what that means for me as a person of color is that I was socialized to believe in um, or, or yeah, believe in or hold um, internalized racial oppression, right? So the ways in which that I manifest, it manifests for me looks like imposter syndrome, right? Not being able to step into my shine or to not apply for jobs. It can also mean the oppression Olympics. There's so many examples. Um, and so when you actually start with this fundamental truth of everyone has been socialized and education is the tool to socialize us into believing these facts, then you actually start to feel empowered and take responsibility of every action that you take within the classroom or in the educational setting. So it is true, there is a quote that, um, and I can't remember off the top of my head, but essentially is like, in education, you can either be a revolutionary or an oppressor. And every action that you can, that you take is either going to be anti-racist or racist, right? So we often, as people of color, will separate ourselves from this and think like, we are not part of the system and I'm absolved from it. And I, that is not true, right? We actually have a lot of power to perpetuate the same systems. And so one of the examples that I will share or there's two examples, one I'll say on the individual teacher level, and then the second I'll share in more of a systemic level, is this idea of my experiences being the truth, the way how, for how students of color should be taught. And so oftentimes I was like, well, I was taught in my suburban school to lecture, like that is, they learned everything like in high, like you probably hear this all the time. Well, in college, they lecture and you need to learn how to take notes in that ways and et cetera, et cetera. And the reality is like, that is an oppressive approach of teaching and learning. 
what it says is that I, as a teacher, hold all the knowledge and the students do not hold anything. They don't know anything. And, and that actually communicates to students that they are an empty vessel, that they don't have any prior background experience. It's a very, what we call, it's a transmission view of learning. And so in the beginning of teaching, like that was where my class was like, I, I essentially did not reflect on my schooling experience, did not think about the ways in which like, I actually did not learn that great in lecture style classrooms. But because I identified with my students racially, I didn't step back and interrogate that I was in essentially perpetuating the same very things that were happening with them. So that would be on the one, on the more teacher level. On the systemic level, um, whew, this one is a big one, but it's hard to say because, you know, I have to do my own working and, and go through grace when I think about myself when I was in this part of my identity journey and I was going through the unlearning phase, but I definitely um, bought into and was invested in this like idea of scarcity mindset, right? So like there isn't enough of uh, whatever, director level roles in the organization. And so I need to compete with every single other person and I need to oppress other people or try to like step on their shoes to be able to get the whatever title and et cetera, et cetera. And scarcity mindset is a manifestation of white supremacy culture where it's like, we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough titles, et cetera, et cetera. And in the reality is that's not true. If we hold an abundancy mindset to say there is plenty, there is plenty of opportunities for me and AKA that is what is true for most white upper-class men, straight men in the world, they operate from an abundancy mindset, but we often do not. And so when we do operate from an abundancy mindset, the way we approach our coworkers is completely different. The way that we view the world and opportunities is really different. We don't need to be jealous or insecure when someone is winning, uh, I don't know, core value award. We're not like, well, they don't do X, you know, and it comes with a lot of negative energy and also is a, a really a culture of shame. It's a culture of um, I mean, negativity. And so for me, I was um, perpetuating the very things I was complaining about, which was a negative culture, a culture that didn't feel like I was belonging. And I, like I said, I was early on in my unlearning journey um, because that is what K-12 system is about. It is about scarcity mindset. It is about, oh, these Ivy League schools only accept X amount of students. And so therefore I need to compete with everyone else, right? And thinking about tracking. There's so many examples, again, of how our educational systems socialize us to believe things. And if we don't stop and commit to the unlearning to relearn process, we are bound to continue that cycle. Um. I just feel like we're gonna have time to sort of reflect back on the things you shared with us, but I do wanna take a moment to like, just acknowledge your story and the power that it has. And all of us have a narrative, right? All of us have something to share. And from every story we hear, there's something that can be taken from it. And I think that's why stories are so powerful because they have impact. And there's like 
lasting things we can take from it. And so when I think about impact and making things last, as you continue to walk in your purpose, and now that you've made this pivot pivot to like walking in what you're most passionate about, when the book closes and people have read the story on like Rachel's life and the work she has accomplished, what do you want people to say at the end of having read your story? Hmm, that's a great question. <clears throat> um, I know I said this early. I think my book should be called, I'm not new to this, I'm true to this. Um, and seriously, uh, you'll laugh, but when I was doing some reflection, I forgot that in sixth grade, I was facilitating anti-racism and oh, sorry, racism and um, anti-Semitism trainings for younger students. And so there are so many examples of my life that I feel like I was taught or positioned to learn the skills that I use now. I was a peer mediator to so learn coaching skills from sixth grade six to 12. There are so many examples for me that I feel like you know, when you reflect on your life and think about all of the ways in which your purpose was, your seeds were planted for your purpose, it really is empowering. So I think about, oh, and that's why I say I'm not new to this, I'm true to this. Um, and I would hope that people as they're reading through the chapters, if we were to keep this book analogy, were to say that I was a model for anti-racism, that everything that I preached, that I demonstrated, that I operated with a people first mentality, that I really centered communities, um, that they are the experts in their own experience, um, that I was speaking truth to power and that not using or mincing my words to make people feel comfortable, um, that I was also a learner myself and recognizing when my own um, identity markers in which that I hold privilege, um, I was consistently reflecting on how do I show up as a co-conspirator um, in the work. Um, and I feel like that's what I want to be true. I think I can facilitate so many trainings, which I do, but I want people to think about how I showed up in the work. Um, because for me, the how is more important than the what. I can say I'm a anti-racist every day and do all of these trainings. But if I don't model that practice um, for people to see, then for me, it's just lip service. And I think I'm pretty exhausted um, at the amount of lip services that we've seen in the last five or six months, um, the amount of reactive um, ways that our places of work have shown up since, you know, quote unquote, what do, they, what do white people like to say? since um, racial reckoning <laughs> has happening. Um, and so for me, I, I want people to know like, what does it mean to live a life that is dedicated to doing this work and reflecting every single day? Not just because there is another um, death of a black boy or um, I should say particularly a black trans woman because they are the group that is most marginalized in our society at this point. 
it's not enough for us to be reactive. We have to be proactive if we are striving for a completely different society. Um, and so that is a little bit about how I would want people to say about me when I'm in, in this space. I love your story. Um, and you just shared so much with us, but I'm thinking about the sixth grade you and the Rachel that we have now. So what key takeaways do you have out of all of the lessons that you learned or the ones that you can remember at this moment? What key takeaways do you have for students like you? Hmm, that's a great question. <clears throat> Ooh, when I think about sixth grade Rachel, she would be so proud of 30-year-old Rachel. Sorry. Um, <laughs> this is what we do here at Copy Room Chronicles, okay, yes. people? Yes! Come <laughs> through, 30-year-old Rachel. <laughs> that's sixth grade Rachel showing up and smiling. Um, She'd be really proud because um, what I think is the most powerful thing in life is staying authentic and true to yourself. And I think when I, when I shared about the stories of pain of <clears throat> living in assimilation for so long, and wanting to fit in and not quite fitting in and, and to think about me now where I'm like, okay, you don't like me and that's cool, bye-bye. Um, it's just, a, it. I mean, I'm not liberated because I still live in this oppressive system, but there is liberation and being able to exist in my full authentic self and being in a, being an entrepreneur now truly allows me to be my authentic self in the most liberated way that I've experienced in my life so far. And so I feel like, um, yes, if you're listening, I did start getting emotional. If you didn't tell from their uh, uh, pauses and yes, yes. Um, but I think uh, it was a really challenging beginning of the year for me, um, where I was experiencing so much, um, pull being pulled in different directions where, you know, there's always a place of where you can sacrifice yourself and your authenticity for power, money, and a title. And sixth grade Rachel did it for like popularity and in, in, she didn't want to, um, but that's what she thought she had to do. So to be so steeped in my own belief and my own strengths and my own power is really, um, like I said, empowering to me. And, you know, uh, the world would say that black women should be humble about their experiences. And for, for me to stand in my shine is actually to disrupt that and to um, practice anti-racism. And so for me, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud. And I would say to kids that look like me or in the situation and also adults like now is like, how do you stay true to your self? Like, who are you? What are your values? How do you make decisions based on your values? 
because places of work are is fleeting. Um, and at the end of the day, you are the person that you have to answer answer to. And so how do you wake up every day feeling fulfilled, feeling happy, leading through your values, disrupting systems? Um, and if you can answer that, then that's really what's important. And think about your sixth grade self and think about what made um, he, her, or they happy. Um, because that's a good indicator of what you want it to be true. And I think given everything you said and the how you're walking in your path and purpose, do you feel like these lessons you've taken away have come from the books and school? Or is it really the streets and the life experience you have had to date? <clears throat> So I would say for sure, when I think about my K-12 experience, it was definitely the streets um, for sure. Um, and the ways in which that I just continuously, like I said, I was in a position that I had to continuously reflect on who I was and my identity, especially as a light-skinned, racially ambiguous Black woman. Um, and then when I got to higher education, um, more so in my career, I would say, I started to like hypothesize about things that I believe to be true inherently, and then read a lot to be able to say like, wow, that, that like feeling I had, AKA like, oh, we should position students and orient them to each other. Oh, that is culture responsive pedagogy. Like that's good teaching or wow, intersectionality is something that is important. And that's why I get really bothered with white feminism. So I actually was able to articulate more clearly some of my own personal philosophies through, through like academic language and theories. Not that that's important because like my formal or informal experiences are just as valuable but I think there was something empowering to be able to have shared language with other people. So I would say off the, mostly from in the streets when I think about my K-12 schooling experience, but more so in my career, it's been a mix of, mix of both. Rachel got us in deep thought right now. <laughs> And Ika, I don't know if you're feeling how I'm feeling, but I have like a gazillion um, key takeaways from this conversation. So yeah. like, this was deep. Yeah. K-Tom, kick us off. What are you taking away from Rachel's story and her narrative? At the school I work at now, identity is really important for the kids. And so in sixth grade, they literally worked the entire year to answer the question, who am I? But the principal is just very frank. You can't teach these kids how to answer that question for themselves if you don't know who you are. Um, and you're not bringing that to the classroom and sharing that with them. And so it makes me think about like systemic oppression in schools. And that stems again from like something Rachel touched on earlier, just the teacher not knowing who they are when they're in front of the kids and so that authenticity is so important because kids are looking to us all the time even when we don't know they're looking they're looking to us for direction 
answers and just a model of what they can become. And so for me, it's just being authentic, whether that's in a classroom or not, um, and kind of modeling what it is to be myself unapologetically, even with all of these like rules in place. For me, I'm thinking about a lot. So my seventh year of teaching, I feel like I may have spoken about this on the podcast, but anybody who I like talk to often, I always bring up this seventh year of teaching. And it was just like a pivotal year for me because I think it was that peak of like realization of I have a lot of unlearning to do. And I am heavily projecting my schooling experience onto my students, but I also am heavily projecting my fears about life and the world onto my kids. And so I went to a KIPP school as a student and then I became a KIPP teacher. And Rachel brought up something about when she was a teacher around, like we teach the way we were taught and have this belief that that's the best way because we turned out okay, or like we made it to wherever we're at. And so when I reflect on that seventh year, one, it was, it was pivotal because I took the time to stop and reflect, which we don't do enough. Um, but also how do we empower our students to like advocate that like, this does not work for me. And as educators taking that time to listen and stop trying to forcefully mold people to learn in ways that don't benefit them. And so like your story really like pushed me to think back on that time and just how important it is to take time to reflect and really push ourselves to do things differently. And just because something happened to us or we learned a certain way doesn't mean we have to continue to perpetuate that. Um, I also think a lot about being an educator of color and how we often teach with fear because we are so deeply afraid of sending our students out into the world and not being prepared for what the world is going to give them. But it's unfair, right? And then we're perpetuating these systems when we're constantly adultifying them or taking away their childhood and their ability to be children, right? Because when you really think about many young white kids, like they are getting to experience for longer periods of time being a child. So that really stuck with me. I think also something that I'm like sitting with is as we continue to have, bring people into the teaching profession, how do we center them, their voice and their narrative before we center the content and the work? Because how are you going to stand in front of students day in and day out if you are not fully sure of who you are as a person? And if there's anybody who's gonna read you to filth because they know you're not being for real, is going to be kids. And so how do we support people earlier in life to show up as the person you want to show up? Because I think we often show up as a representative, right? Of who we think we're supposed to be, who we think we're supposed to act like. And again, that goes back to like 
socialization and how we've been conditioned. And so I'm just a firm believer of like, why do kids have to wait till they get to college? Or like, why do they have to have these like moments of realization so late in life? Like, how can we really reimagine what schooling looks like? So people are walking in their purpose and standing in their greatness much sooner, right? Like, I don't know, why do we have to experience an existential crisis at 30? Why can we have kids at 15 stating this is who I am and this is the road that I'm on? And granted, we continue to change and we evolve, but like let people stand in that space. So that's kind of where I'm at. I know that was a lot. No, it's cool. And I, it brought me back to something else I'm walking away with is just this idea of freedom. Mm. Right? Liberation. We need to teach kids. You're always going to have yourself. And that's what you need to make sure is good at all times. People are always going to disagree with you. People are always going to have something to say, but as long as you're happy with where you are, what you are doing, how you feel, that's the main prize. That is the main prize. And we also just have to, in addition to liberating our students, we need to liberate each other because we have those situations where people are extremely unhappy and then they'll project that onto others because, oh, this is the way of life. You just do it this way. And like, it's comfort, it's stability, but we don't have to do that anymore. Like everything is shifting. And so just teaching this idea of liberation through action yeah. is really, really important to me. I also think something you said too, and I think Rachel may have like used the actual word, but this idea of truth mm -hmm. and who gets to define what is true. And how can we operate in a way where whether you're a child or even an adult, you're not operating as just a vessel that's just ingesting because there is never going to ever be one person who is the keeper of all knowledge. But we often find ourselves in the workplace or in schools, people positioning themselves that way. And so how do we get students, adults to really interrogate like what is the truth? and whose truth gets to be centered. Any thoughts on what we're saying, Rach? Girl, we could be here all day. This is good. Thank you for, for revoicing. I know I went on a, a tangent, a lot of processing for me and I'm a verbal processor. So um, thanks for creating that space. But I think one of the things that you all made me think about, which is true is um, when I was a high school teacher, I was a teacher at alternative high school. So my students were students that were kicked out of Chicago public schools or they were um, pregnant, all right? Chicago public schools has a 20 day drop. So if you miss 20 days of school, you are now dropped, which is obviously an example of an oppressive system or policy, I should say policy. So I had brilliant students, brilliant students. And when I joined Teach for America, I had an archetype of what my classroom was going to look like, what my experience is going to be. And being placed at the alternative school was probably one of the best, um, let's say coincidences, because I didn't get to choose, 
because my students taught me similar to what you shared Eliza about I projected what success was going to be for them I wanted the story of oh my god it's college signing day or all of those things and really re I centered myself a lot um and this is I think what you said Eliza made me think about it and I had to because I did that I actually wasn't an effective teacher um or as effective as I could have been right similar to like me lecturing and again I, I was not doing that unlearning or understanding my own identities and experiences and I actually had to do some serious thinking about six, what is success? Who, again, who defines success? Um, who gets to have the conversation with me? Or, you know, and when I started to really peel back the layers of like positioning my students to be the ones that define their success for them as you know, 17 year olds, 18 year olds, 19 year olds, it really flipped a lot of the things that I believe inherent. Well, it flipped a lot of things that I thought about and really solidified about what I believe inherently to be true, which is that people are the experts and particularly I'm talking about um, black and, and brown students and people are the experts on their experience. They are the experts on what they want to be true in their success. And it is our role as educators to help share information, help them cultivate the necessary skills and to excavate from them, not drop in their brains what they want and what they need. And so I think a lot about that because for after teaching for the six years I was in nonprofits, that wasn't a shared belief that a lot of people held. It was that we know what's best. These are the outcomes that students should be um, maintaining and going for. Here's long-term trajectory that they need to be in post, they need to be in college and, and without actually centering students. And I think that that is the biggest problem currently facing the education world is that we do not center communities, families, and students as the ones who define success. And that inherently is a racist ideology um, because we are positioning ourselves as an expert on the experience that we do not have, right? And you can like, yeah, cool. I was, I am a I identify as black with my students, but I also didn't grow up in Chicago. I also didn't, you're like, there's so many differences. And, and this is a, a fault that teachers of color do all the time in assuming that they know what's best instead of asking the students. And so, Eliza just connected a lot of that. And then I think like, that is, that is something that is truly, if I were an educator listening to this conversation, I would say, and ask myself, how have I defined success for my students? Who got to be a part of that process? Um, where is this my own definition of success rooted in and coming from? And, and I think Eliza connected to you. How is that being influenced by my fear for students? How am I projecting my own stuff onto them? And I think when you when you reflected on like why students can't 
at 15 be able to say like, this is who I am, that's what it is. It's because of the fact that they are not positioned as experts in their own experience. They are not positioned as people who have agency, who have the voice. Even the ways that we talk about students, um, it is a very deficit-based model. Um, it's more of I'm giving, I'm transferring, I'm X, Y, and Z versus I'm a partner, I'm a facilitator. I'm a, it's a very different language shift. And so I just, I think about that as like one of my largest life lessons that my students taught me that I carry not only in my work with educators, but in all of the work that I do with different people in all spaces is like, what is success? What are your long-term goals? And what is that rooted in? Um, and I'm here to support you in that. This work of disruption, no matter your field, is extremely difficult. It could be draining and extremely exhausting. And we know that. And so we always make it a point to end on wellness because we want people to stay in this work and to be able to like push forth in it. And so, Rach, how do you stay well as you continue your journey of disrupting um, in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, great question. Because it is a lot and can carry a lot of um, emotional drainage, especially when holding truth, a lot of people's unlearning and socialization. So I do a couple of things. And my first is, I'll refer to her, my therapist. Um, she's helped me a lot. And so I have done a lot of therapy since losing my job to be able to understand some of the ways in which I was experiencing oppression and or perpetuating oppression. So that's one of the things. And some of the other things that she taught me was like, I journal every um, Sunday for sure. And basically write down like what, how am I experiencing the week? What I want to be true for the week ahead. Um, doing that like dedicated reflection for myself, both personally and professionally. Um, the, the third is I, uh, work out. Now, when I wasn't teaching, I literally did not work out once. And I think, oh, that was a, I know now 30 year old Rachel knows that I working out for me and I particularly run is a stress reliever. And so I know my stress relievers in my life. And some people it's not, it is doing yoga. It's actually meditating. It's so for me, it's really the like attending therapy every week. Um, and obviously that's a larger conversation of accessibility. Um, so you, there's a lot of apps you can use. Insight Timer is a great one for you just to reflect and, and meditate, journaling, and then um, exercising or running. So those are some of my um, ways I stay well. Okay, Tom, are you doing something different this week to stay well? I am. So I'm getting back into yoga. I have all of my materials. My body was stiff. Okay. And so <laughs> I'm getting back to it. I missed it so much. And I didn't realize I missed it until I was actually listening to a podcast. Um, and then I was like, man, like because of COVID-19, a lot of studios were shut down. So we were in our homes and like me for yoga, I need an instructor because I won't push myself or maybe I won't do a position the correct way. But now I'm like, no, go for it. Go for it. So I have all of my yoga materials. I'm getting back into it. And that's how I'm staying well. ECAT, 
What are you doing this week? Um, y'all, I got a Peloton or whatever. Hey. I love my Peloton. I love cycling. Um, I don't know. It brings out the inner white woman in me. <laughs> Call me Elise. That's how I feel like when I'm on my bike. Um, but no, I really love cycling. I do agree. I've never been a person who's like loved going to the gym. I've always been into classes, but I have to have something at some point to turn off work. And I just feel like exercise is a good transition to end one part of your day and move into the next, um, even if it's difficult, even if you don't want to. Um, so yeah, so I've been riding my Peloton. I love it a lot. I love going to classes. I love being able to like have friends on Peloton who like hold me accountable. Um, but yeah, so that's what I am doing to stay well and being in conversation and in community with people. I know that for me, I am fueled by quality time. And so being able to just even have you here, Rachel, in this space and for you to drop your gems and jewels is definitely something that's made my night better. Um, and it, it just, as somebody who has known you for a long, as long as I have, I am so, 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 so proud of you. I admire you. I admire the work that you do. I admire how you show up for yourself, your family, your friends. Um, and I'm just so grateful for learning from you in this conversation, but also when we have our own moments and I'm just really thankful for you and thank, thankful for like you being the catalyst to me entering in this work and constantly thinking about how I want to be better and how I want to show up. So, yeah. Aww. <laughs> that was so good. Okay, y'all, thank you for joining us. Rachel, thank you so much for stopping by the copy room and kicking with us. Yes. Um, Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, hopefully the listeners are um, having some moments, had some moments of joys, of, of gems, of deep reflection, um, and, you know, take care of themselves as they do. So thank you for having me and allowing me to tell my own story. But Rachel, just really quick, because you are a Black woman in business, please let our listeners know how they can find you so they can get some diversity, equity, and inclusion training. Please get them together. <laughs> yes. Yes. So you can uh, find me on my website, which is rachelvicente.com, R-A-C-H-E-L-V-I-C-E-N-T-E.com. That would be a good place to start. And you can follow me on social media. Um, it's at Rachel Vicente, and then is an underscore because someone stole my my name, so I had to put an underscore at the end. Um, and please find me and follow me. I would love to engage with you. If you follow me on uh, Instagram, you'll find a lot of gems um, and reflections that I have on white supremacy culture and me speaking truth to power unapologetically. So um, those are two ways that you can stay engaged with me. And uh, Crystal, thanks for for that pitch. Okay, we got to always plug our people. Um, as always, to those listening and tuning in, it's always an honor and a pleasure to have you in the copy room. Until next time. Bye. Deuces. <laughs>